Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Michelle Garcia Winner, a globally recognized thought leader, author, speaker, and social cognitive therapist. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Social Thinking, a company devoted to helping individuals gain stronger social awareness and social functioning skills through the social thinking methodology. Across her 30-year career, Michelle has created numerous evidence-based strategies treatment frameworks, and curricula to help interventionists develop social competencies in those they support. In today's conversation, we discuss grouping students based on social needs rather than diagnostic labels, how to increase social competence through four main steps, attend, interpret, problem-solve, and respond, complex social concepts like nuanced perspective-taking, what a typical session at Michelle's clinic might look like, why small talk is embedded in most social situations, autistic empathy, navigating the dating world, maintaining friendships, and tips for autistic people going into a job interview. In this episode, discover what's possible when we relate through emotions. To learn more about Michelle and her work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Michelle Garcia Winner. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. So could you please briefly introduce yourself? So I'm Michelle garcia Winner, and I'm a speech-language pathologist who immediately got involved with what is now considered classical autism back in the 1990s. Those are folks who have intellectual learning challenges as well as uh, diagnosed with autism. And in the early 2000s, I became particularly interested in the needs of people who were Asperger syndrome, uh, which was common diagno- was an emerging diagnosis at the time, but those who had solid to very high intelligence and solid to very high language skills. I was working for a high school district actually in the late 1990s, and a subgroup of my students were fine with me directing them their behavior and teaching them from a reward system point of view, how to behave as they did not have great self-awareness, nor did they have very strong language. But then I had this other group of high school students who were completely offended by what their past history was. The speech pathologist would be directing them what, what they should do behaviorally and how to behave. And they hated it. And they, so the moment I showed up, they resented me. They didn't like any of this. And so I just started learning about them rather than assume that I understood what their world was about and started talking to them and asking them a lot of questions and finding out about their experiences and their history and what they want. 
And in that journey, I also, you know, gained their trust. And then I began understanding what some of their dilemmas were. And some of their dilemmas were they simply didn't understand how aspects of the social world worked. And if you don't understand how something is working in the social world, then it's really hard to figure out how to navigate yourself in that world based on what you want for yourself. The social thinking methodology, when I started it, I was very aware that the diagnostic system was incapable of making accurate diagnosis on everybody. So my clients uh, by high school had five different diagnoses, ADHD, autism, dysgraphia, mental health issues, and there was no consistency as to the type of diagnosis that was getting referred to me. But what I did start to notice was that there were different types of cohorts of individuals in terms of how they processes, understood and responded to the social world. And so I ended up starting to group my students based on their abilities socially rather than diagnostic labels. Oh, interesting. So from that point of view, we've always been a more neurodivergent focused treatment or or not even a treatment, just a help, then we have been focused on let's, you know, try to cure something or stop you behaving a certain way. Mm -hmm. Got it. And how did you or how do you still separate or categorize the different groups by social needs? Yeah. We ended up developing kind of five different cohorts and the social thinking methodology helps with basically three of those. If you can think about the bars on your cell phone, there's five different bars that show signal strength. Mm -hmm. So think about the weakest signal strength are those who really have learning and language challenges, and they don't have enough language to be able to think about the thinking process. So we don't work with that group because our what we teach about in the social world is your ability to understand and think about and talk about what you're thinking about. Like, think about perspective taking. That's something we all take for granted. But if someone doesn't quite understand perspective taking, we need to explain what it is. And you need to be able to hold that idea in your mind to some extent. So the smallest bar on the on the cell phone, we don't, we refer to people who are working with those who have really compromised learning and language systems. And then the strongest bar on the cell phone are what we call the typically developing individual. Interestingly, our work has been adopted now into mainstream classes because they found that how we deconstructed the social world and explain it is actually helpful to all kids at some level in the mainstream classrooms, especially in elementary school and even in high school. Mm. And then the middle bars, I think, has to do a lot with how literal a person is. How literally do they interpret information? If they don't understand abstract information at all, and they can't understand idioms, they don't understand any kind of an inference, cause and effect thinking, they have language, but they tend to be very, very literal. They don't have uh, critical thinking. That's the second bar on the um, on our cell phone analogy of signal strength. And we may teach them very literal ways in which the social world works, but we're not expecting them to make inferences and be very sophisticated at this. The middle bar on the cell phone is still kind of bends towards 
literal. If any of you are still familiar with who Temple Grandin is, I know she recently came out with another book. Yeah. But Temple Grandin is a good example of the middle bar where she's a very, very intelligent woman. But she processes things quite literally, and it, she has a hard time seeing others' perspectives. Although in the course of her life, our life is a journey, she is absolutely improving mm-hmm. in that ability to consider others' perspectives and not just her own. But that middle bar is learning about the fact that other people have different perspectives and trying to make sense of it. Although it's not a particular, it's, you know, the brain doesn't just flip this information around in milliseconds, like typically developing individuals. The fourth bar on the cell phone, and let me say the people in the middle bar tend to appear quirky in the sense that they're not great observers of the social world. They're not really kind of matching the cadence of the social world around them. So they often stand out as unique individuals. And people can see that they're bright. And a lot of times, you know, of course, there's the bully out there, but there's a lot of times that peers will support them because they can get that they don't understand some of the social dynamics without anyone explaining that. And they will become natural mentors to them. Mm. Same with individuals who are in that, that what we call our pre-emerging, the middle bar we call our emerging social thinkers. And then the next bar up, we call our nuanced challenged. And these are the folks, the fourth bar, the one next to the neurotypical, are the group of folks who appear quite neurotypical if you just see them. They move with cadence and they don't appear particularly quirky at all, but they still are struggling to understand complex social dynamics. Mm-hmm. And um They still benefit from breaking things down, explaining them. The emotional system is often really confusing to them as it is for all. But this group, because they look so neurotypical, people hold them to really high expectations. Mm. You know, we often think, oh, the weaker you are, the more, for lack of better words, autistic you are, the bigger your problems are. But there's another way to look at that, which is the more you appear typical, the more we hold you accountable to being neurotypical, the less kind we are. So this, what we call the nuanced challenged group is the group that people get really frustrated with. And these guys also can have massive organizational issues and a lot of emotional dysregulation And they may be uh, monologuing and not understanding that people are thinking of them very narcissistically and may not want to spend time with them. And so we find that that group actually gets penalized a lot. Mm -hmm. And people don't understand that their brain does not fluidly engage in this social thinking process. Right. And that's kind of related to this movement away from using functioning labels like high functioning and low functioning, right? Because those who would have been considered high-functioning, their needs get overlooked for the reasons that you're saying. Sure. So social is a perception. And you don't need to have a label for people to perceive you. It's just like our gender, our race, all these things that the brain figures out and thinks about without us even wanting to. And social is one of those perceptions that we all perceive each other. And we try to, you know, our social brain is our meaning maker. It tries to make sense of what's going on around us. And it includes trying to make sense of that person, not only the people we're interacting with, but the people we're sharing space with, the people we're watching on our screens, that the social brain is just trying to figure all these things out. There was a show on about a very smart engineering type person who socially just constantly misses it. 
and that that goes into replay now. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, Is it the Big Bang Theory? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So that's a good example of like we find they turned it into comedy, mm-hmm. but you know, really, you're talking about somebody who gets so much scientific thinking, but he doesn't get the social thinking. And so he kind of fits into our middle bar on our analogy. Right. And I really like this analogy and how you've broken it down. It's very clear. So would you say that autistic people who, let's say, maybe they're on the second to lower bar, second to middle? Uh We call them pre-emerging. Pre-emerging. Because their brains tend to think that way, is your methodology just giving them tools so that they can learn how to engage in the world better, but they'll always kind of have that way of thinking? Or can people move up in the bars? So it's a good question. We don't highly recommend our methodology for those who we call the pre-emerging. So the middle bar we call the emerging social um, communicator because their brain is literally emerging into understanding perspective taking. Right. Okay. But then let's say you start at the middle and then can you move up that way? I think if you're on the borderlands, like this is all a spectrum of social cognition. Uh And I talked to a researcher about this years ago about, you know, the way we see it at our clinic is that this is a spectrum of social cognition and it goes from, you know, a very compromised learner uh, right up to the neurotypical. And the researcher looked at me and said, well, if you do do it that way, then what you're saying is all the research we've done around autism is not accurate because they see autism as a very fixed place that it kind of has three levels of these three different categories in which they now use autism one, two, and three. But actually there's plenty of people who are diagnosed autism who are in a fourth level, this more uh, what we call the subtle but significant group. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's one thing to be a researcher and it's another thing to be a treatment provider who, who works with people regardless of their diagnosis. And you get a very different view of the world when you see all the different diagnostic systems not necessarily explaining an individual because they have so many different diagnostic labels. Yeah. Okay. So you've developed the four stages of social thinking. Could you describe what those are? So one of the things that we talk a lot about is in the use of our work, we really want people to focus on helping people learn to be increasingly socially competent rather than focus on how they should behave. Okay. And there is a big divide in the field. And I, I think recently behavioral tactics have been, as a, as a peer treatment methodology, are certainly being challenged out there. But they're still quite prominent in terms of let's get this person to behave. How they behave is unacceptable. And so one of the things in our quest to kind of really understand how to help, what we noticed was first, the social world starts with social observation. You don't start by doing something. You start by thinking about what's happening around you or what's happening in the text and reading comprehension or what's happening on the screen. And so to that end, the first thing that happens in the the social mind is it attends to information. If you're not attending to something, you cannot interpret it. So the next stage is to interpret. So you attend and then you interpret. And people are like, well, what's the difference between attend and interpret? And it's like, well, have you ever looked at something but not really seen it? Mm. 
Right. So you look and then you see, Mm -hmm. right? Like, um, so attend is the first is just to drive your your brain to social attention. So the research shows that individuals on the autism spectrum have incredibly sharp science attention for many, where their brain really can go incredibly deep in terms of what they're attending to in the science world. And what that means in real time is a number of the folks we work with will get lost in looking at the details in an environment and not the people in the environment. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in the social world, we attend to the fact that uh, who are the people, what's going on in the situation. As we attend to that context, we then interpret what's going on. Who do I think these people are? So for example, right before I signed on with this, I'm visiting my daughter and her family and, and we went to coffee this morning. So I've never been to this coffee shop. You walk in. Okay, first of all, where's the coffee shop? Okay, attend. Here's the coffee shop inside. Interpret. Is there a line? How does it work in this coffee shop? There was, you know, a counter where you think you order, but somebody's sitting right next to the place in which you order. How do you figure all that out? So attend, interpret. Next level is problem solve or figure it out. Figure out what's happening in order to be able to respond. So you might respond by just getting yourself into the line, but then it's constantly flexibly changing because as the line moves up, now your role has changed. You're you're also figuring out the roles of the people. There's the cashier. Here's people staying in line. Now it's my turn. Now what am I supposed to do? Attend, interpret, problem solve, respond. Oh, okay. She wants me to now give the order. Now I have to explain it in a way that makes sense to her. So this whole model of attend, interpret, problem solve, respond is cyclical. But how we respond is not just what we want, but it has a lot to do with what's this person expecting from us. So if I just say to the person at the coffee counter, I want coffee, that's not going to be enough for her because she's offering 20 different types of coffee mm-hmm. up on the wall between the lattes and maybe not 20, but the, you know, a gazillion choices, you're supposed to know to attend, interpret, problem solve, and now give her a very specific order, the size, the type that you want. You're free to ask a question. If you take that little pattern, attend, interpret, problem solve, and respond, it carries with you everywhere. And one of the things we found with the individuals we work with, and the people I'm working with right now are uh, seniors in our world. They're 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds. And my client I saw yesterday is 75, who got a late diagnosis. And we're working on noticing, observing, trying to take the perspective of another person. That's part of attend, interpret. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? What's the goal that you guys are trying to figure out together as you as you spend time together? And then how do you respond based on that information. And often a response is you stay silent. You know, like my my client yesterday was very proud of himself. He goes, I am now choosing to not speak. (laughs) He goes, before, I always thought that if I wasn't speaking, I wasn't communicating. And now I'm holding my thoughts in my head. Like, fantastic. Right. So how can you walk us through maybe what a session would look like? What are the materials and tools you're using to teach some of these concepts? Are you doing it in the real world? Are you using some stimuli? So um, we work with folks either online, you know, COVID opened up the need to do online sessions. And it's not, I take very few clients. Uh, 
we have two licensed clinics, one's in San Jose, California, and one's in Boston. But when I'm seeing people, they either come to my office where I have my little, you know, lab table where I see them, or we meet online. And what I tell them is our sessions are a learning lab for me to help you understand whatever your needs are. So the sessions start with really paying attention to what the person is telling you. Like if a teenager comes in, they're often complaining about nobody will include me or why do people treat me so badly? And then we try to mine that for more information by asking more questions. With my adults or those we've worked with for a while, we try to help you understand the situation that's happening everywhere else. So you don't come to our clinic for us to focus on how you're working in the group solely with the other kids you're in a group with if you're students. We work with you on learning concepts in the group that you are to use outside of the group. You know, in a behavioral model, we teach you how to behave, and then we work on this thing called generalization. In the social thinking model, we're having you attend, interpret, problem solve, and respond. We give you this bandwidth to go out and notice things. So if a kid's like, you know, I just want to have lunch with somebody, I'm tired of always being by myself, we don't start by saying, well, then go have lunch with somebody. We start by saying, all right, when you're in the lunchroom, I want you to notice one or two people that you um, have some familiarity with from your classes that have been somewhat friendly to you, you're somewhat friendly to them, and come up with a plan. Like, come back and tell us about those one or two people. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting them to attend, interpret, right, and starting to problem solve. And now they've kind of identified one individual we start with we never say just go join a group that just we have too much feedback over the years of students being told by someone saying, you don't well, just go join a group. You never join a group. And then the person can't join a group because they've never learned, you know, that's so easy to those that that's easy to. Yeah. So anyhow, then they identify somebody that they would want to have lunch with. And then we're like, well, Okay, when do you see this person? Well, you're in my math class. Okay, what you'll, you'll notice in a lot of our students is they're not great at initiating communication. So they're not checking in with this person or after class, they don't walk out of the class with anybody. So it's like, hey, why don't you walk out with that person and say, you know, uh, did you, or before class meets, did you study for the test last night? Like just do little things to show that you're interested in that person. And then ultimately to the point where you're talking to that person a little bit and then say, hey, you want to have lunch together and start making your plan. Yeah. But this is a journey. And, you know, I take it that the listeners are familiar with the journey, but a lot of our folks are really, they can be really talkative, but it doesn't mean they're good social initiators in terms of relationship building, nor does it mean that they're great listeners to what somebody else is trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that I hear from a lot of autistic people is that they don't like small talk. Yeah. They don't care. They don't, you know, even want to ask, how are you if they don't really know you? So do you um, teach some of those kinds of nuanced social skills also? So we would never teach you how to do small talk without explaining why. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that most of us don't love small talk, but it's a place to build community. 
And the intention of small talk, it's not about the language itself. It's about the intention to show that you're interested in another person. So while it's annoying to just say, you know, how was last night or what'd you do or how's your day going? Because it really gives us no factual value. It is a step in relationship building. And it just, the intention is you show interest in another person. Stop. That's all you're doing. And that person, when you show interest, people tend to show interest in you. Relationships don't evolve without you showing interest in that other person. If you're a teacher or a mentor, your relationship is clear. Your job is to just give information. But if you're interested in having someone to eat lunch with or hang out with a little bit or just feel like you're included in the community in some way, then we go through these little steps of showing interest in someone. Mm -hmm. So once we have them start watching it, like, you know, notice when people do small talk, one, ask people, like, did the discussion itself have great value to you? No, absolutely not. Why do we do it? And it's just to show someone that I'm, I'm interested in you. You're part of my community. Mm-hmm. And so from that point of view, it's like, okay, what can you tolerate in this? Small talk also is a way to decide if that's a person you want to keep talking to. It helps you to decide, like, for whatever reason, and they're not always clear in our mind, I just don't like the way this person's talking to me. I don't like the way they're responding or they just seem so hung up on themselves. I just want to get away from them. I think it's important that we don't think of autistic people as folks who need to behave solely, that autistic people are very sensitive to how other people are behaving as well. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Especially the type that we're talking about in this podcast. It's not just people are judgmental about them. They're judgmental. They should be. We're humans. We should be judgmental. This helps us to stay safe. It helps us to meet our own goals of connecting with people that we like for no clearly definable reasons. And so to really help them be the judges rather than serve as the people who are judged is a turning point in helping them because they're so used to being judged and they don't like how people are thinking about them, flip roles and have them be the judges. Mm -hmm. Who do they like? Why do they like it? What kind of small talk, you know, like what kind of person would they be willing to do this annoying small talk with and is the first step in relationship building. Yeah. What have you learned about autistic empathy? You know, there is this stereotype that autistic people do not know how to empathize. And then you talk to an autistic person and they say, we do, we just empathize in a different way. We show it differently. Right. So I've been actually talking about this in my workshops forever. I've been giving talks to the public, as I said, for over 20 something years. And I think it's always been a mistake to see people with with autism don't empathize. What they struggle with is empathizing in the speed in which the typical person would empathize. Like that imprinting, that emotional understanding of somebody else's needs. So empathy is, I think, part of humanity. And I always have said it's completely wrong. They don't empathize. All of my clients, you know, because part of me working with them is for them to see who I am as a human and not just me be the teacher, you be the person, you know. So I'll come in and tell them, you know, about what happened to me. And They're not immediate often, 
in uh, responding to it, but they will often, almost always respond to it. Even those who are not as strong in their abilities can be very empathetic. They, it's just that, you know, usually empathy comes in this millisecond flip of, oh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And so the question is empathy. A lot of this breaks down in time. Communication, I mean, literally the speed at which we expect all of this to happen. Okay. Right. The other part of empathy is actually having some emotional awareness. So if you're not aware of your own and others' emotions, uh, feelings happen to us. So the way I describe this is feelings happen to all of us. We're all living creatures, basically, they're figuring out have feelings. In fact, they think trees may have feelings. Like, you know, we are embedded with feelings. They're really important. But because they happen to us, we may not even notice that we have them. And so then we start using the words. So in my world, I'll say feelings happen to us and emotions are the words we use to try to label our feelings. We will never be as articulate in labeling our feelings as we are feeling our feelings. We all feel way more than we can figure out how to talk about. Mm -hmm. And language is limited sometimes too in the vocabulary. Yeah. Sure. Vocabulary, emotional vocabulary is cultural. Mm -hmm. You go to different cultures and they have emotional words to describe things that we don't use in our English language, but we all feel. So part of my work is getting people to notice their feelings and that their feelings go from okay to really more enthusiastic. And our feelings go from not okay to really um, negative. And in fact, the brain processes negative feelings differently than positive feelings. We're more articulate about how things we feel negatively about. We notice that in more detail. When we feel positively, we'll talk about it in brush strokes. We usually don't go into great detail about our positive feelings. Mm. So when you bring up empathy, for individuals who are not aware of their feeling system because their feelings have always just happened to them, One is they're more likely to become dysregulated because they don't have a cognitive awareness of how to manage these feelings that are hitting them. And another aspect is if you're not understanding your own feelings, it's obvious that you're not going to easily be able to verbalize that you understand someone else's feelings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're a very verbal culture. So the more that you have language to help you think about thinking. Empathy is a metacognitive process. I have to think about how you're feeling. I think about what you're thinking. And then I start to resonate with, oh, that must be hard for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and you find that teaching this kind of perspective taking from a young age helps people in the long run. Like it's a skill that they can maintain and use in adulthood, like when they're working in an office and well, we wouldn't call it a skill we would call it competencies okay right so attend interpret problem solve if we're teaching empathy one is i'm going to be very empathetic as a teacher so i'm not going to be disappointed i'm not going to slam you if you come in and do something wrong i'm going to be empathetic i'm going to try to understand what you're experiencing we can only help somebody if we understand their experience In the past, it hasn't, you know, in our work, we've always been that way, but there's so many treatments that don't seek to understand a person's experience. They just expect them to shift into all these different experiences very quickly and behave themselves. 
Mm-hmm. So I want to understand their confusions. I want to understand their frustrations. And then I can talk about, wow, that must be really hard for you. And in me showing empathy, I'm also modeling empathy in the sense that I'll come in and I literally will say things like, oh my gosh, I have had the hardest day. Like, um, you know, I'm so glad to see you, but this day has been really rough for me. And I remember this group of teenagers who none of them seem very empathetic, but they're like, well, what happened? And I'm like, oh, I just had this kid like attack me in a session. And this happened in real time. This was years ago. And I was like, so I'm a little bit flustered right now. And I know that you guys like joking around with me, but I am in such a heightened state that if you joke around with me right now, I'm not sure I'm going to see it as funny. Oh. And um, the kids responded to that. And then one of them ended up a very, a guy who you would never call empathetic was like, God, that must be really hard for you. We better figure this out. (laughs) And the group was great. Mm -hmm. But that's because, you know, in our work together, we are part of the group. It's not, I am the teacher, you are the students, and you must do this and I do that. It's like, whatever I do, I'm part of the group experience with you. You're interpreting me. You're attending, interpreting, problem solving, and responding to me as much as I'm doing that with you. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not a panacea. It's not amazing work. It's a journey. And we've developed a number of tools to help individuals start to understand the social world because what we noticed was a lot of our, the people we work with across age groups are thrust into a world that they really don't see the dynamics happening within that. So to that end, I created what I call social thinking vocabulary. And then we also have frameworks to explain some systems in the social world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another struggle that I hear from some autistic adults is navigating the dating world. Oh yeah. Do you have some, (laughs) some clients and Um, Maybe some success stories to share? Well, the dating world is the social world with exclamation points, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's heated by our hormones and our desires. And what I did do, and I do a lot of this work with my colleague, Dr. Pam Crook, who she and I have worked together last 17 years now. We actually have a webinar on our website. It's either a webinar or online training, I'm not sure, but it's about flirting and dating. And it took our friendship pyramid and we turned it into the pyramid of flirting and dating. Mm. And we start with all these cues like, you know, to flirt is to attend, interpret, right? Like, oh, I'm observing. Oh, that's someone I like. Do they have someone else that they're paired with, right? Because you don't want to start hitting on someone that's clearly in the bar or somewhere who gets school, who's got a boyfriend. Yeah. And so we break it all down and then we talk about, okay, if this happens, stop, you know, like you're now staring at them a little longer and they're staring back at you. Okay. That's a go. You might approach them. If you approach them and they talk to you a little bit, but then they turn their body away, that's a stop. But if you approach them and you talk to them and they keep talking to you, that's a go. And so we just broke it all down into a place to kind of give them direction about the flirting dating process. Now that it's a go and you take go out on a date, you know, and they're enjoying it and they're saying they want to be with you, it's not just you wanting to be with them, then that goes to, okay, should we spend more time together? And then it 
moves up further in terms of, I think I get into touching. Is it a go? Is it a stop? Mm -hmm. The hardest thing about flirting and dating is the perspective taking that's, you know, really understanding when your hormones are fueled up and you are sexually really wanting this to happen, to feel good, that you really have to slow down those hormones to be super sensitive to the person you're with and have, you know, agreements along the way in terms of how you're progressing with that person. Yeah. And somewhat related to this in the dating world, you know, when you're courting is a very old fashioned word, but when you're you know, in the early stages and you're communicating, maybe you're texting with someone and sure. you're just, like you said, so excited. You like them a lot and you just keep sending messages before giving them a chance to respond. And then the other person just gets smothered and feeling suffocated and losing interest because it's too much. And this also happens with friendships, right? Like sometimes sure. autistic people really mean well. And they just, you know, like the person and want to be around them and don't really understand when to pull back. Right. Well, we need some concrete rules mm -hmm. about that because really when the hormones start pushing us, the sexual, you know, desires, they, or, or even in the friendships, as you mentioned, what somebody wants for themselves versus what's going to be comfortable to the other person is the really hard part to figure out. So how many texts can you send in a day? Or you check in with somebody and they don't respond to you. You have to wait until they respond. Yeah. And if they're not responding to you, you know, within a good amount of time, like if you're expecting them to respond and they're not, and some hours pass, you might just say, hey, is everything okay? But if you keep sending the exact same Text Like I, I have been shown text streams where the person is just saying the exact same thing over and over and over and over days and days and days. And they'll go through the text stream and show me just like a hundred of the same messages that all happened within the course of two days. Um, that's actually considered stalking. Right. Yeah. You know, and that becomes really problematic. So understanding one, that all people, all humans struggle with this mm -hmm. because what we want versus what the, uh, on the timeline, the other person wants to give back to us are not in agreement. And we have to be patient in terms of waiting for their response. And then when they respond, don't immediately respond to them. Like hold off because then it seems like you're sitting by the phone and you're just, you know, barely taking a breath until you get back to them. If that person sees that you're only living for them, it's too much and they'll probably want to break it off. Mm -hmm. And so making sure like them responding, then give yourself like an hour before you respond back to them. And then again, you have to go back into this waiting place. The difference in that is like, if you're really with somebody and they're um, really enthusiastic about the relationship that's happening in terms of more in dating than friendship and they're responding quickly and you know that something good is going on between you, if they're responding quickly, you can respond back quickly, but it has to be reciprocal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, as some autistic people are very rule governed, like they like to follow the rules. Sometimes they just don't know. They don't know these right. 
kinds of social norms and how to interact. So once it's explained to them and the why, it makes sense and they'd follow it. And it kind of reminds me earlier, you were talking about values and I'm not sure if you're familiar with ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. Sure. And so some of what you're saying, I, I see some overlap in asking the autistic person what they want, what's important to them. What do they value? If they value this friendship or this relationship, what can they do to reach those goals? Is that right? What can they do to reach those goals? And the only way to reach those goals is to consider the goals of the other person. Mm. Right? Like in a friendship, it's mutual. And so it's not just about you achieving your goals. It's about, are you doing something that helps that other person want you to achieve those goals? when it comes to relationships. And that's where it gets very hard because we are not mind readers totally. We can only tell from the responses people give us. Yeah. And so it's like we can create rules and the more literally minded person, the more literal rules they need. If you're more abstract, we can say, okay, you got to wait a while, you know, at least an hour before you text back. But then for a literally minded person, say you can only text this person four times in a day, once every two hours or twice a day, stop. Yeah. And so do you think with this kind of advanced level perspective taking for some neurotypicals, it's very automatic, right? Where It's just, you don't really think about it. Sure. So for autistic people, once they're going through this program or this kind of training for themselves to become more competent. Is it then something they turn on when they're in an interaction? They're like, okay, what are those steps I need to take? And they have some questions to ask themselves and run through that scenario. Yeah. So the social world surrounds us. And what we really want our folks to do is to practice attending and interpreting, problem solving what's going on around us away from interaction. If you can't make sense of the social world when you're not interacting, the interaction itself will completely flood you, Mm, mm -hmm. right? And so there's so much of our world is being around people but not interacting. And there's a tendency for people to think of social as only interacting. But social is actually how you share space. And it is expected as we share space that we notice each other. That's how we keep from colliding. That's how classrooms work. And so I would really encourage people to notice, you know, these different aspects of what's going on around them. What's the situation? Who are the people? When we get to the interaction piece, now we're going to also talk about the perspective taking, like, you know, and I'll talk to folks about your brain makes it a little bit tricky to actually stay engaged in listening to them because your mind is so much on to telling them what you want to tell them. But when you're in a conversation or small talk, it's about following each other's lead, right? Like paying attention to what they said. And I get into all these ways about how we break conversation down because it's, you know, it's if you and I weren't doing this and we were just talking to each other, I would tell you about the coffee shop I was in and with my visiting my granddaughter, I'm in, you know, Raleigh, North Carolina. I actually live in California right now. And as I tell you that, what you would normally do was start telling me about something in your life that my message reminded you of. It's not really maintaining a topic. It's connecting around shared experiences. 
And you would tell me about something that I said that reminded you of something in your life. And then I would listen to what you're talking about in your life, which would remind me some of something more about in my life. And we actually talk a lot about ourselves in conversations, but we connect what we're saying based on imagining the other person's experience and connect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's why a common question when you're first meeting someone is, where are you from? So you can find a connection there. Oh, I'm from California too. Okay. What part? And you just keep going, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or anything like, how was your day? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a good, you know, we start with, oh, you know, the small talk piece, but. Right, right. Or, yeah, all kinds of plays. Mm-hmm. All right, Michelle, I wish we had more time and I could keep going on this topic with you forever. I have so many questions. I will just close with one last one. So I know you've been already giving some tips for autistic people when they're first entering a situation. What advice would you give someone who, let's say they are a young adult and, you know, they're entering the workforce and they're offered an interview and now they're nervous because, you know, they've had bad experiences in the past. What advice would you give them? Um, It really depends on the type of autism the person has. Usually you have somebody who has self-awareness. You know, there's not all people with autism are self-aware of what's happening around them. So usually when you talk about a person going into an interview and they have that awareness in terms of our levels or characteristics of the social mind, you're talking about somebody who's probably more nuanced, maybe bends a little bit more on literal. And what we're going to try to figure out is, one, what were they learning from the experience? Do they have any awareness of what went well and what didn't go well to reflect upon? And all of these things require flexible thinking. And when you're in an interview, there's things you want the person to know, but you also need to relate to some level, right? Because they're looking for an employee who can be part of a team and not just, it depends on what you're being interviewed for. But let's assume the interview has to do with you working for a group that is going to have some group events or want you to at least be part of a community Because there are jobs where you get hired to just do tech stuff online and you sign in and you just do your tech stuff and there really isn't community. But if you're interviewing for the community piece, being able to observe what's happening around you, but also um, I'll I'll end with one further comment. There's a difference between an information informer and a social relator. Our folks tend to be really good information informers. They're there to tell you what they know, but they're not necessarily socially relating. So they're not casing what they're saying based on how the other person's receiving it. Or they there's so much they want to say that they go into a monologue and they don't have any stop signs in their brain to say, let me just give you a little bit of information. And if you want more, you'll ask me more questions. Mm-hmm. So I work with my individuals on what are some things that you can give them a high level summary to the question. And if they want more, they'll ask you. Mm. And then you give them the next level. If they want more, they'll ask you and teach them how the interviews go rather than come in and just all this information without pacing it at all for how the other person is receiving it. Yeah. And then see this person as a social relator, like in this interview, you're not just there to give information, but to relate to the person and have some questions for that person about how they 
what the work environment's like and what do they value about this work environment and things like that so that they show interest in the person that's interviewing them and it's not just a one-way street. Yeah. Oh, that's great practical advice. Okay. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for You're welcome, Rachel. sharing your expertise with us. Yeah. Anyway, good luck. You know, it's a journey for us all. And through our social thinking methodology, there's no script. It's learning about the person and then learning how we can help them based on their own goals and needs, not based on what we think they need, but what they want for themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'll post a link to your website in our show notes so people can learn more. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Michelle breaks down complex social concepts into simple strategies that impact people's broader lives, including their ability to foster relationships and succeed in academic and career performance. If you're autistic, what's your experience with developing social competence? Share your story over in our online Global Autism community. Family members and professionals are also welcome. This is a safe space to hear directly from autistic individuals and learn how to become a better ally. Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online Global Autism community to collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.